This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Scott Cunningham and is part three of Seeing the World with Jesus' Eyes. I remember one Sunday when I was a senior at Wheaton College, which is just down the road here, that I was driving to church and the, the sidewalks were literally overflowing with people in their Sunday's best going to church, which is an awesome thing. But I remember vividly thinking, I want to go somewhere where I would be weird if I was going to church on a Sunday morning. So when I graduated, God led me to a city in North England, which was 1% Christian. And I worked at this church uh, in the middle of the city, and I had about a 20-minute walk to church, and I remember walking to church, and it was a ghost town. Nobody was up. Nobody was going to church. Nobody cared. And as I continued to live in this place, um, walking to church on those empty sidewalks past literally hundreds of thousands of people who had either rejected the gospel or never heard it, God began to put pressure on my faith like you would put pressure on a piece of wood as if you were going to crack it. And I was confronted with this question of, did I actually believe what the scriptures say about Jesus and why he came and the judgment of his coming return? And if I did, how in the world was I supposed to put that together with the empty sidewalks? All that to say, that became a real problem for me. Uh, in layman's terms, it messed me up, as they say. Um, those empty sidewalks creeped into my heart, and eventually I snapped like that, that piece of wood. My heart just broke. And when it did, I crawled to the scriptures to be put back together again, to have God say, you know, everything's okay, and to relieve me of that tension and that sadness. But when I went to the scriptures, I did not find all clouds and Thomas Kincaid paintings. I found people weeping, weeping. I found the prophets weeping and living lives of lamentation as they were called to be faithful people in the midst of unfaithful people. I found the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes saying crazy things like, it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. I found Paul talking about his sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart on account of his Jewish brethren. He was so broke up about it that he even wished that he would be cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers. I found the book of James urging the people to be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And I found Jesus saying, blessed are they who mourn. And as I was reading all these things, instead of receiving the kind of consolation that I was looking for, I found God saying yes to my broken heart. Yes to the tension. And as God began to draw me in deeper and deeper into that house of mourning, I began to experience and be opened up to the heart of God and the gospel in fresh and powerful ways. That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about biblical Christian heartbreak. What does it mean to weep in that sense for the world? 
to be Christians who weep. So in order to do that, we're going to focus in on Nehemiah 1, which is one of the most beautiful pictures of, of this thing, this biblical heartbreak that we're talking about. And then we're going to pan back out um, and think about ourselves and think about the world. So grab your Bibles or bulletin and look at this passage with me. It's Nehemiah 1. To give you a little context, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah um, are about the times after all the patriarchs, so all Abraham and Jacob and all those dudes, and then after all the kings, all the Solomons and the Davids, when after hundreds of years of epic unfaithfulness, uh, they were defeated and taken into exile, just like God promised would happen. And when this story picks up, Nehemiah is a Jewish leader who at that point was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, okay, in the city of Susa, the citadel. He's in captivity way far away. So look at your Bible with me. In verse 1 and 2, some Jewish guys comes to, come to Susa, and Nehemiah asks them, you know, hey, how, how are things going for everybody who's still in Jerusalem? And in verse 3, they, sell, they tell him that the people there are in great trouble and shame, and that the city's basically in ruins. It's been destroyed by fire. And what happens next? Look at verse 4 with me. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah, in the royal halls of the great empire of Persia, hears this news, and the wood snaps. His heart breaks. It's not a private pang in the heart for Nehemiah. It overwhelms him spiritually, emotionally, physically, so much so that we learn from the next chapter that he's in the middle of the court with all these guys, and it's like visibly noticeable. They're like, dude, what is wrong with you? And I just want to stop and point out that this point in the Bible, the time of exile, was a really dark time, dark, dark time, but an amazing, beautiful movement is about to happen in the scriptures, and it starts here with Nehemiah's tears. His weeping right here is literally the pebble that starts the avalanche of all the Jews returning home, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the temple, worshiping God in spirit and truth, abolishing idols, liberating the poor, everything. It starts here with this man being moved by the state of his world. Bonnie and Trevor McMackins, uh, McMacken are dear friends of this church, and lots of you guys know them. They went to go plant a church from here uh, a year ago, actually, like almost to the dot, uh, in Aurora, which is like 20 minutes from here. Most of you guys know that. I'm not from here, so that would help me to know if Aurora was down the street. Um, but basically, if you know Bonnie and Trevor, they were praying about where to plant a church. And eventually, God put Aurora on their heart, and God knows when and how, but at some point, God broke Bonnie and Trevor's heart for the people of Aurora. And if you know Bonnie and Trevor, you know this is true. Uh, my wife and I work at City of Light, their church, half and half as we do here. And I got to say, from day one, it's been clear to me that one of the biggest gifts they bring to Aurora is their tears. It literally has catalyzed so much in their ministry. It's been contagious through their congregation. People in Aurora are going to come to know Jesus because Bonnie and Trevor got their heart broken for those people. Isn't that amazing? Almost all of the great missional movements or church revivals or renewals start with somebody. If you follow the breadcrumb trail far back enough, who had their heart broken. 
And that's what's happening here in Nehemiah. And just like Bonnie and Trevor, though it starts with heartbreak, it doesn't just finish there. It moves on. And I want to pull two things out of Nehemiah 1 that characterize Christian heartbreak. So two things uh, that we can kind of learn from Nehemiah here. The first thing that characterizes Christian heartbreak is prayer. Look back at your Bibles with me. Notice that he hears the news in verse 3. He snaps in verse 4. And then for the rest of the chapter, he collapses and just erupts in prayer. You see, Nehemiah hears news that God's people in Jerusalem, his holy city, were suffering and that its walls were destroyed. Translation, Nehemiah knows the revelation and presence and right worship of the one true God as entrusted to the people of the Jews was therefore hanging by a thread over an abyss. There were countless of other nations and small people groups like this that we know nothing about from the ancient Near East because they were obliterated by national bullies and empires like Persia. That's what they did best. Babylon or Persia would come in, defeat your city, sack everything, ship all your best people to the capital to assimilate them. People is no more. And Nehemiah, knowing this is the case, collapses. But he doesn't just weep. He prays. Anybody can, can whine. Anybody can collapse. Anybody can, can weep. That in and of itself is not a evidence of Christian virtue or righteousness or something like that. But when Nehemiah weeps, he prays, and he doesn't just pray any prayer. He prays with understanding to the faithful covenant God for him to keep his word. So in a way, he provides us a little clinic on Christian heartbreak as it leads into prayer. So look at the richness of this prayer with me. Check out verse 5 and verse 6. If you have your Bible or your bulletin open. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. He identifies God as the faithful God who has made promises with this world. And he cared about the world long before Nehemiah ever did. And he identifies him as the hearing God. And from there, in the rest of verse 6 and 7, if you're looking at it, he acknowledges that the state of things are not because God wasn't faithful, but because the people had rejected God. He confesses the sins of the people. So he says, we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. And last, he he calls upon God to remember his word. That's the turning point of this prayer, is that one word, remember. So in verse 8, if you read it with me, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So in this prayer, he identifies God as the faithful God who keeps his word. He confesses the sins of the people, and then he calls God to act in remembrance of what he has promised. We can learn a lot from this when we are confronted with hopelessness in the church or the world. God teaches us not just to cry out, but how to cry out. When we see something that breaks our heart, we start We begin by recognizing that God is faithful and that he has promised things and bound himself to this world and that he cares about 
cares more about the world way more than we do. And so when we do that, we enter into his heart for the world. And when we do that, we're transformed in the process. God is the one who said that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is the one who said that it's too small of a thing to just save and preserve Israel, but that he would be a light to the nations so that his salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. God is the one who says that he hears the cry of the oppressed and that he's coming to judge in equity and truth. And as Father Stephen often quotes, let God be true, though every man a liar. Amen? That's what guides our prayers when we snap before the brokenness of this world. And that's uh, the first characteristic of this Christian heartbreak, that kind of prayer. And when we pray like that, it transforms us and it leads us to the second thing that characterizes this type of Christian prayer, and that is action. We get up off of our knees. This is just chapter one of Nehemiah, and like I said, this heartbreak in prayer is the pebble that starts the avalanche. And if you read the rest of Nehemiah and Ezra, it's epic. It is amazing, the kind of revival that happens. So through Nehemiah's tears and his prayers, God gives him favor. He actually prays at the end of this prayer, Lord, give me, give me success in what I want to do about this. And God gives him that favor from the king of Persia all the way down to the lowest peasant in Jerusalem. Like I said, the poor are liberated from oppression. They rebuild things. They start worshiping God truly again. It's amazing. There's actually this one point that they all gather in the center of the city, and Ezra, who's helping Nehemiah, reads the first five books of the Bible, and the people stand up and weep. Can you imagine that? Think about you come to church, and it's like a reading from all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then all rise, and you guys all stand up, and we all weep through the whole thing. That's revival. And that all starts because this guy just breaks over the state of things. It's amazing. It's not just a wet rag. His heartbreak, his tears overflow in prayer and action. Chicago needs your tears. America needs people who will weep like this. The American church needs the brokenness that leads to revival. But it gets even better because God's heart doesn't just break for Chicago, but for empty sidewalks worldwide. And we are called, every one of us as Christian men and women, to lift our eyes up and also to weep for the nations. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, as a convicting example of God's heart and our role in this, I want us to think about the narrative of Jonah for a second. And don't worry, I know it's like, oh my gosh, Jonah and Nehemiah in the same sermon, like Old Testament overload. Trust me, uh, I think you can track with me here. So th think about it this, think about it this way. Jonah is a, a prophet, he's another really Old Testament guy, and his story is the exact parallel opposite of Nehemiah's. So Jonah is like the yin to Nehemiah's yang, okay? Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. Nehemiah was in exile in Persia, far away, and he felt called to return to Jerusalem, to home. Jonah starts at home in Israel and was called by God to go to Nineveh, which was the capital city of another huge international ancient bully empire, Assyria. 
Nehemiah's heart broke for, for Jerusalem, and he entered into what God was doing for the renewal and revival of that city. Jonah was called by God to go be a part of what God was doing for the renewal and revival of Nineveh, and he didn't care. The book of Jonah is complex, just as complex as it is simple, but most people agree that part of the reason why Jonah really didn't care is because the Ninevites were foreigners. In fact, they were enemies. The Israelites hated the Ninevites, so he wasn't very excited to hear that God wanted to save these people. So think about it like this. The story of Nehemiah is like you grow up at Rez, you love Rez, and then you move to Paris in your glory days, right? And you're living the Paris lifestyle, and you're in a cafe drinking some espresso, just crushing it. And then some people from Chicago come in, and you're like, oh, hey, man, how's Rez? And they're like, you haven't heard? And you're like, what? It's like, the great windows are all smashed. The people are under oppression from the city of Wheaton. There's idol worship at Rez right now. And you get up, and you smash your espresso, and you're like, no! You buy a plane ticket home, you come home, and you start wrecking shop. You come in the middle of the sanctuary and open up God's word and read it. Start revival, because you're just overwhelmed for it. The story of Jonah would be like if you grew up at Rez and you never left. And you're doing really well here. And then God says, I want you to go be a part of what I'm doing in Mecca. So go. And you're not bothered. That's not clickbait for you, if you will. You don't like that headline as much. For me, that difference is very convicting, is it not? And it turns out that we as people are fairly good at sheltering ourselves from certain things that should break our hearts. The end of Jonah paints this, perfect, paints this picture perfectly, um, and it's printed in your bulletin on the sermon page. So grab that real quick and look at it with me. Now, let me give you a little context leading up to these last two verses. Most of you who know Jonah know that there's a thing that happens with a whale, and he's running away from God, and blah, 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 blah. He eventually goes to Nineveh. He gets to Nineveh, and he's like, repent, under his breath, because he doesn't want the people to repent. And the people all freak out. They get up in their, you know, cafes and smash their, their espresso cups, and they're like, why did nobody ever tell us about this? And there's this amazing, amazing revival. And then Jonah takes his little sassy self, and he's mad, and he walks out of the city, and he go fly, finds a place to pout, like my 18-month-old when he runs out of milk. So there's the city in revival, and Jonah's completely on the outside. And in a scene which is just some of the, the highest comedy in all of the Bible, he's sitting out there pouting in the sun, and God causes this huge plant to grow up over him to shield him from the sun. And Jonah's sitting out there under this plant, he's like, oh, this is so good. Man, I love this plant. But then God causes a worm to eat the plant. And Jonah's furious, so much so that he wishes to die, literally. Let's just say his heart breaks for the plant, right? And this is where it gets good. God basically says, are you seriously justified in whining for your, like, palm tree? And he's like, yes, I am justified. Now look with me on your sermon page. This is the end of Jonah, the very end. And these verses are meant to hang unresolved like a formidable challenge to you and me. Starting in verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, 
nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle, period, end of the book of Jonah. Wolf. To go back to our little analogy before, this would be like God calls you to go preach salvation to save all the people of Mecca, and you're not too bothered. But it's a really hot summer, and your house is really hot, and you don't have any AC, and God blesses you with AC. Such good AC that you can hang meat in your house. I mean, it's like cold. And you go to res groups, and you're like, I just got a praise to share during prayer time. We've been so blessed by our AC. Like, God's just been so good to us, and just some blah, 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 and everybody's like, oh, that's amazing. But then your AC busts, and you flounder. You shake your fists at God. You're furious. And God confronts you and says, you're heartbroken. You're troubled. You're so bent out of shape about your AC. Should I not care about the literal million and a half people who live in Mecca? Do you feel the sting of that? Comfort, our own comfort, can be a shield to having our heart broken for the world. Our own prejudice can be a shield to having our heart broken for the world. Do you see that here in Jonah? Do you see that in your own life? I know I do. There's this iconic passage in Shakespeare's King Lear um, when he, the king, King Lear, is beginning to have his heart broken by the state of the world. His plant, if you will, is being removed, and there's this moment where his wood snaps. Basically, uh, in the story of, of King Lear, he's a king through a series of un- bad decisions and all kinds of stuff. He loses all that, his palace, his kingship, everything, and he's caught out in the middle of this awful storm with this character just known as the fool. So he's in the middle, unsheltered in the middle of this awful storm, and he begins to realize that people suffer through this. He says, poor naked wretches that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm. And he begins to realize, my whole life, I've never known that people suffer out in this. I've been in the palace. He says, oh, I have taken too little care of this. He just starts breaking. And then, almost as if a challenge to himself and to the audience, he says this, and I love it. Expose thyself to feel what wretches feel and show the heavens more just. Expose thyself to feel what wretches feel. God's heart was so troubled, so heartbroken for the world out of a place of unfathomable love that he, the God of heaven and earth, exposed himself to the sadness and tragedy of this world that we have all had our own part in messing up. He exposed himself to feel what we wretches feel, and he sent his only son. Amen? Jesus wept. It never tells us in any other part of the Bible that Jesus smiled or laughed, but it makes sure that we know he wept. He was a man of sorrows. What a name. Jesus stands before Jerusalem and weeps, Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. He kneels in the Garden of Gethsemane and prays, Thy will be done. And then he gets up and he moves in action to the cross. That is the gospel. 
And all Christians, all of us, are called to enter into that with Christ. We're meant to have our hypothetical plants removed and be exposed to the scorching heat of the brokenness of this world, to stand shoulder to shoulder with Christ and weep with him. And that at least is part of what it means when the Bible talks about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And those tears aren't just sad. They're not just flailing, whining. They're specific heartbreak in the Christian sense like we've been talking about. And they do things. They usher in the kingdom. Things happen. We kneel with Jesus in Gethsemane, and then we stand up and we move. The church needs your tears. Chicago needs your tears. The nations need your tears. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't say you cannot bear the full burden of the world. That's in God's hands. All authority in heaven and on earth has been handed to Jesus, and it's safe in his hands. Praise God, right? But we are meant to have those plants removed and be affected, be heartbroken by the state of the world. Going to the house of mourning is a biblical thing, and sometimes it's even a command. And I think that that is highly underappreciated in American cultural Christianity. We avoid that like the plague. Weeping, being discontent and discomforted is bad. We try to get away from that. But nowhere do I find anybody in the Bible trying to shelter you from that. We enter into that with Christ. You cannot carry the whole world, but it's still it means that we're supposed to enter into having our heart broken. And finally, if we're a Christ-like church, we're going to be marked by sending people. If we're a church that's having our heart broken, we're going to be a church that is also moving. Jesus said, you know, the tree by the fruit. And I think one of the ways that you can kind of gauge the health of a church is like, what are they doing? What are they doing in the world? The church, the Christian church throughout history, from Paul to St. Patrick to Jim Elliott to Gregory Whitaker, has always been marked by going, by being moved and going. It's my prayer that that our church would send more and more and more people, that that map in All Saints would just be splattered with people who have gone to the nations, that our youth would grow up in a, in a culture where that's something that you dream about. That's, some, that's, a, that's a viable option. That's something that you know could happen, that our adults would be so moved by the gospel and so moved by the need of the world and the nations like Mecca or anywhere else, that the normal drama of American careerism would just be shattered, be grown men and women giving up their careers and going, why not you? Seriously, why not? God wants to break your heart for the world. Weep, pray, and then move in the power of the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.